0: This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Selvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. On May 12th, Colonial Pipeline restarted its operations after a five-day shutdown. Colonial's pipelines provide 40% of the East Coast fuel supply. It is the primary fuel source for 17 states and Washington, D.C., as well as Atlanta Airport, the busiest in the US. The cause for the shutdown was a so-called ransomware attack on Colonial, perpetuated by a private entity named Darkside, thought to be located in either Russia or Eastern Europe. While the total cost and inconvenience of the incident will be difficult to quantify, the most harmful long-term effect may come from the fact that Colonial is said to have restored operations by acceding to the hacker's demands and paying a $5 million ransom, thus providing the funding and incentives for future similar attacks. My guest today is Dr. Brandon Valeriano, the Bren Chair of Military Innovation at the Marine Corps University and a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Dr. Valeriano has published six books, including Cyber War versus Cyber Reality in 2015 and Cyber Strategy in 2018. Dr. Valeriano has pro- provided testimony on cyber conflict in front of both the U.S. Senate and the Parliament of the United Kingdom. His ongoing research explores conflict escalation and big data in cybersecurity. Dr. Valeriano will share with us his views on how the Colonial Pipeline incident fits in the developing realm of cyber conflict and cyber crime and offer policy outlines on ways to better protect our national infrastructure and security. When I return, I'll be joined by Dr. Brandon Valeriano. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by cybersecurity expert, Dr. Brandon Valeriano. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to hear uh, your views on the Colonial Pipeline incident. Um, I want to uh, first uh, uh, set the, the stage for our listeners. I like your work because I think I would characterize it as, as not being uh, a cyber alarmist, but rather someone who uses Uh, uh, history and uh, a global analysis to understand where cybersecurity is uh, threatened, where it's not, why it's threatened, why it's not. Um, I wanna give you a a chance to introduce yourself to the audience um, and tell them what you see as sort of why we are where we are. Why do we not see more cyber warfare, uh, though we've been talking about it for 30 years, and why are we uh, more inclined to see we are talking about today, which is non-state actors uh, using cyber attacks for their own use?
1: Oh, great. Um, That's a huge question, and that's (laughs) going to animate many a PhD dissertation for the next 10 years, sadly. So, you know, back in the day, we'd say, uh, proverbially, many a tree will be felled to these questions. Um, Many a computer will be burnt out to these questions, uh, with many people writing through the night trying to furiously figure out cybersecurity. Um, So I'm Brandon Valeriano, I am the brand chair of military innovation at the Marine Corps University. I'm also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And on top of that, and probably most important for our conversation, is that I am currently a senior advisor for the Cyberspace Solarium. So the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was a congressional mandated commission, which we've heard a lot about commissions recently, uh, especially with uh, January uh, 6th. And the 9-11 Commission. The Cyberspace Solarnium Commission was a similar idea to sort out cyber strategy for the nation. And like you mentioned, this has been an ongoing issue for decades. Um, and a lot of people like to think of cybersecurity as new, but at this point, um, you know, my favorite cybersecurity movie is War Games. War Games mm-hmm. is 1982. You know, what sure. is that? It's 40 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, this is almost becoming an ancient domain. And the problem is, is that a lot of people can visualize and think of digital destruction that could come through the internet. A lot of people have personally gone through digital destruction, whether that be um, personally ransomware or their computer being hacked, losing a thesis paper the night before, a lot of people have gone through these kind of personal issues. But in terms of the large network outages that affect international politics, they've actually been much rarer than we actually expected, And a lot of people anticipated digital doom quite early on in the 90s. And that has not come to pass, mainly because cyber is not a very good coercive instrument. It doesn't help you get people to do the thing you want them to do, which is the nature of power, to get states to behave in a certain way. So this is really what's been lacking. You can use cyber technology to disrupt, to harass, or to spy, but to coerce or compel, we, we've seen very little evidence of that happening. So that's where I come to the field. I want evidence, I want examples. Um, it's not good enough for me for you to tell me about this great idea of a wormhole that you saw in a sci-fi fiction novel and to tell me this applies to cybersecurity. That's just not how the world works. We have 30, 40 years of history in this domain and at least the last 10 to 15 years of more mature cyber conflict. And it has not gotten out of control the people might expect it to.
0: So I, w- I want to develop that uh, theme. Uh, if it's not an effective use, uh, useful tool for states to coerce other states to behave in one way or another, Uh, Yet we are seeing quite a few cyber attacks. What are the reasons one entity would want to attack a computer system? If it's not states trying to coerce um, behavior, uh, who is doing the attacking?
1: Well, if it's states, it's because they want to harass or they want to steal information. The other operator, obviously, is private criminals and private actors. Um, We also have seen a rise in PMCs, private military companies in the military space, and cyber is not immune to that. There are a lot of individual actors. And in fact, in the United States, the threat intelligence community, the cyber firms, um, the ones who are providing the protection, the fry, fire eye and crowd in the world, um, might even be more capable and have been stealing talent from the NSA and CIA for decades of support. So there is a lot of capability out there, but, the reasons for criminal behavior is typically the ancient uh, reason that we've seen, you know, for forever, um, greed, adverseness that they're trying to gain something quick and easily. And we're seeing this quite often with ransomware attacks, where they find that uh, even insurance companies are saying it's easier just to pay the ransom than to fix the actual problem. And the other thing is we haven't seen a lot of great defenses because, um, Historically, the companies attacked have seen no repercussions. I think there's only been one company that had a negative stock hit after a cyber incident. I think that was Target. I'm not sure exactly, but we did a study on this. And the majority of companies recover within a few months, if not a week. Even SolarWinds saw their stock price go up after the SolarWinds attack in December. So there's not really that great financial motivation for the boardroom to act. And on top of that, of course, the US government is trying to get its hands around the idea of how do we employ and cultivate cyber talent when the government workforce probably is going to operate much differently than the cyber workforce. Meaning that the people who do computer destruction and computer forensics are not going to be the type of people you typically hire. In government. So we have a kind of gap in terms of defenses and protections because the legalities because of authorities and because of workforce issues that uh, the defense is quite often behind.
0: Um, now the bad actors in this particular case we're talking about, uh, it's called dark side. And they're thought to be working from either Russia or uh, as I've read a, a Russian speaking part of Eastern Europe. Um, I know this is a fairly recent incident so you may not have all the data. Are they uh, an example of a non-state actor or are they uh, a state actor harassing us uh, under the guise of a a private organization?
1: It seems to be very much like a non-state actor. And in some ways, it seems to be like an actor that went too far and made a mistake. And I think in some ways, they did not anticipate the fallout that happened. And they were not prepared, obviously, because the U.S. government basically shut down their networks and took all their money the day after Joe Biden gave a speech in the White House. So this is kind of one of those proverbial uh, examples when, a criminal network goes too far when they hurt a tourist or do something that might necessarily not be good for business, quote unquote. And that's, I think, what happened here with dark Side, is that they went too far. They hurt a business and they hurt a company or a country that's not going to tolerate these types of business. So um, I think that's the predicament that dark Side is in right now. It's a, you know, a something that the Russians know about because there's nothing that happens in Russian cyberspace that the Russian government doesn't know about. But it doesn't mean that it's russian controlled and operated or even condoned. The Russians are probably just as unhappy with this as the United States is because of course, this is not something they want to deal with. If you're a security manager in Russia, this is not the top of the list of things you want to deal with because none of this helps the Russian state. None of this helps Russia achieve its goals. All it does is disrupt America and just basically piss us off.
0: Well, if, if indeed it, um, getting caught is a deterrent, meaning uh, these, these actors want to be just uh, 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 troublesome enough to extort a ransom, but not troublesome enough to, to uh, generate a response, um, couldn't we hold Russia a, uh, accountable, thereby encouraging them also to uh, not offer safe haven for, for these kinds of actors?
1: Yes, and I believe that's something that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we don't have confirmation on this, and we probably won't for a number of years. But, um, you know, the likely process of what happened is, and uh, you know, as we were just talking, I, I was away last week, but I, I'm forgetting the dates at this point. But um, after Joe Biden made that threat, it's very likely that the NSC at that point communicated said threat to Russia and told Russia to take dark side off their networks. And that's probably what happened. Um, there's no reason for Russia to push back on these sort of issues because if you know um, if your junkyard dog goes off the leash, it's your responsibility to put that dog back on the leash. And that's the question we're really trying to deal with right now is responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we figure out responsibility? How do we figure and determine legal responsibility? Is this Russia's fault specifically because Russia might have known about the act? But the reality is, is that uh, just because you operate under someone's space doesn't mean it's known to the state and that the state doesn't necessarily have the capabilities to watch every type of these criminal enterprise uh, networks that are operating.
0: Now, I, I want to uh, talk about um, uh, before uh, Biden's uh, speech and perhaps before our response, um, it's, it's been learned that this pipeline that supplies 17 states, including uh, as well as the Washington, D.C. and the Atlanta airport, uh, they extorted a ransom of $5 million. Apparently, that money was paid by uh, Colonial. Um, in that situation, again, uh, you're not sitting on the board or in the CEO seat, but um, is, is it prudent? Uh, let's say it hadn't, um, um, we hadn't gotten to the point where the pipeline was actually shut down and where the day before it's about to be shut down. Uh, what are firms uh, uh, inclined to do? Uh, what have they done? And you know, what has your research shown?
1: Well, I think the thing is, is that the firm is going to ask the insurance company and the insurance company is the one who's going to make the determination. Do we pay the ransom right now or do we bring in another firm to fight back? And it seems like they did both, but they brought in another firm, FireEye, to fight back. But at the same time, they paid the ransom, likely because it's cheaper and faster and easier to pay the ransom. But the other thing we've found out over time is that, These groups are not very good at undoing what they destroy. So, this is the problem is that even though Colonial paid the ransom, um, the networks were not up and running the next day. And in fact, um, I think we're getting greater word. Uh, I think it's been confirmed by CNN and Kim Zetter's work has demonstrated this already this last week that what happened with the gas pipeline was all Colonial's fault because they could not get their billing operation up and running and so because they could not bill customers for gas they did not ship said gas so it's not that their production pipelines were ever hit by the ransomware it's not that their production pipelines were ever impacted it's the knock-on effects here and in many ways a lot of what happened here is very much irresponsible and they have held the entire eastern seaboard kind of hostage not to the negligence of russia not to the negligence of this criminal enterprise but because they're not ready and capable of getting their operations back up and running in a timely manner. But this is something we've talked about quite um, repeatedly with the Solar Commission, is that the United States needs to have a good handle on the continuation of the economy and the continuation of the government, cog and code. And if we don't have a plan for restoring operations and managing the risk of these types of ransomware incidents, we're not gonna be able to get back up and running when these things inevitably do happen. So you know you gotta think about this problem at scale. It's like your computer home network goes down, uh, your kid can't go to school. There's a lot of knock-on effects there, but knock-on effects in terms of an entire country and an entire economy, that's the challenge we're dealing with right now. And it's not exactly clear how we meet this challenge, given there are so many roadblocks put up against government in this space.
0: So I I want to be clear again, I'm not an expert in this space. Um, What you're saying with uh, Colonial is that the cyber tech shut down their systems their billing systems, if you will, not the actual pipeline. So they could have let the the gas flow. They didn't because they wouldn't, they weren't confident they could properly bill for that flow Uh, rather than again, I'm conjuring in my mind, the cyber ability to actually close down. Um, uh, pipelines, or in a more extreme case, I think of another infrastructure, a nuclear power plant that might go meltdown or a airport, um, air traffic control where planes might fall from the sky. What you're saying is this is a billing issue, not an actual infrastructure uh, question.
1: Yeah, and that's the most shocking thing. And um, you know, we've known stuff about this, like this for a long time, uh, particularly with airplanes, right? One of the challenges is that um, entertainment networks on airlines are not connected to the operational system of the airplane. But because of shoddy engineering or problems in design, sometimes they are. And sometimes there are cross connections and cross wires between the two sides. And Colonial rightly shut down the pipeline because of fear that what happened on the IT side, the billing side, the kind of general financial management side that they generally run with, Um, might have impacted the uh, the production side. But at a certain point, shutting down production for such a long time because you can't bill your customers is having a very detrimental impact on the Eastern Seaboard. And the question really at this point is why? Why did this happen? Why were they not prepared? Why were they not ready to restart operations? Is it because the ransomware, when it was paid, the dark side didn't, wasn't able to undo their damage or is it because Colonial was unable to restart its operations too quickly or because they were too, um, you know, uh, a little bit too hesitant to start back up so quickly in case something else might break. Um, but the reality is we have people stranded and, you know, I have a friend in South Carolina right now, who's been trying to get home on a train for five days. Um, There are incredible knock-on effects. And the reality is that it's not a cyber thing, that it's something connected to our digital dependency. And we have not worked out really how to restore or move away from this dependency and how to move towards resiliency in the face of what is inevitable. And what is inevitable is not Russia attacking us. It's that our electronic systems will go down. That's just a fact of life.
0: So I want to speak to the resiliency, and I think it's a good segue. I want to ask uh, the word infrastructure seems to be uh, ubiquitous in our, our political debates these days. Uh, there's a, a big push to spend a lot of money on it. Um, in your mind, um, uh, is this situation, as you say, it seems inevitable, but is uh, are we overlooking our responsibility to uh, shore up our infrastructure against these attacks? Meaning, uh, if my my uh, PhD thesis is is hacked. This is not a, a national issue. But if my power gr- grid uh, is hacked, it is. Um, what could we be doing more? Uh, again, your organization, uh, your commission, this may be your charter, uh, but what could we be doing now, particularly with the hindsight of what happened with Colonial?
1: Well, we don't even need hindsight. Uh, these things happen quite often. And um, just uh, what was it? Last month, uh, Canada went down. Uh, the electrical grid went down because of, of a beaver attack. Um, squirrels and animals, and you know, cows, you know, on the on the tracks have historically been a problem for critical infrastructure. And just because it's electronic doesn't mean you know everything falls apart. That's what seems to happen. So I think the first thing we need to do is. Um, ensure that we have first awareness of these issues and that would mean mandatory breach notification basically that just means that every time there's an incident like this every time there's a ransomware attack like this someone needs to be notified and we didn't know to know what type of ransomware was used because it's basically like a pandemic that we need to have our eyes on what the threats are and if we know That this group is using this type of ransomware, and this is how you undo it. That's the type of stuff we need to know as a country, and we need to get a handle on that. But we currently don't have mandatory breach notification in any manner right now in the United States. And what Congress is working on that, I think we'll get there sometime this year. But because we don't have that, we don't have situational awareness, as they say. Mm -hmm. The other thing, of course, is that this is not a job for the DoD. Uh, Cyber Command, the NSA, um, they're our best cyber operators. But being the best doesn't mean that they have the responsibility to work within the United States. And I think that's really the challenge is they don't have the legal authority to operate in the United States and to protect critical infrastructure. That's the DHS's job. There are 16 points of critical infrastructure, including water, including uh, including, uh, pipelines and gas, and things like this, energy. Um, and I think it's not so much the DHS's fault and CISA's fault, CISA's organization, which in the DHS that works these issues, the critical infrastructure, uh, cyber critical, cyber infrastructure security organization uh, agency. Um, it's their responsibility to work these issues, but um, they've been hindered by both lack of legal authority. They didn't have subpoena power until last year, and they have a lot of jobs and billets to fill not to mention the general mess of the dhs it just, is in otherwise just in you know in all other areas including the border so this is one of the big challenges is that the organization that's supposed to be monitoring our critical infrastructure has not been given the ability or the resources to do, to do the job they need to do
0: is this like uh, this reminds me of the conversation we had after 911 that the fbi and the uh, cii you know didn't coordinate Information that may be a domestic terrorist issue with what may have been an international terrorist issue—is this a similar kind of conversation where we say DHS is is sort of not given the ability to uh, understand the, the the scope of the of the threat?
1: Well, oh, I I think so, but the way I would put it is that it's not no one's limiting them. It's just that they're new, that we generally focus too much on the offense and too much on the DoD. And we haven't focused enough on getting some form of breach notification process put through the U.S. government. So it's not that the DHS has failed. It's just that we haven't failed to organize the government for the defense. And I often say that it's not the defense that's failing. It's the government that's failing. It's that we haven't even tried proper defenses. We haven't even tried to do the basic things that need to be done to protect this nation. And before we can think about the offense, before we can think about punishing Russia, we have to think about what we've done in the system to enable these problems. And, you know, does Colonial know who to call? Who in government did they call? Did they reach out to DHS, the FBI? Did they go through the NSA? You know, it's not clear what sort of normal process a company would go under when these things happen. And it's not clear that cyber insurance is working if the response typically for cyber insurance is to pay the ransom because of course we don't pay ransoms for kidnapping and terrorism you know obviously that enables them too much and gets them a little bit too excited about the opportunities and by restricting opportunities and constricting the access to targets um, we can enable better defenses but it's not clear that
0: we've done that yet so we want to be constructive on this show. Our listeners like to hear uh, positive policy prescriptions. So in your mind, I, I like the analogy of of the uh, uh, COVID nineteen. I know I know somehow we'd work that into uh, yet one more conversation. If we use that as our our analogy, we wanted states to report on uh, infection rates and deaths, this sort of thing, so as to more effectively coordinate a response to the virus. In your view, we ought to have some common database for reporting breaches such that we understand broadly the threat, the bad actors, and can have a coordinated response, either in a defensive way or perhaps even in an offensive way.
1: Yeah, uh, Israel has even moved to a hotline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a hotline isn't exactly going to solve our problems, but it does make people feel a little bit better. But um, the problem is really when these things happen and I make this joke quite often, it's not a very good joke, but uh, every time Harrison Ford crashes his plane into a golf course, he has to tell someone. He has to tell someone why. We have to figure out why, you know, the 787 max is not working. But there's nothing like that in cybersecurity. And of course, awareness of these problems, awareness of these issues is the first step to defending against intrusions. Because if someone comes through the back door, you're gonna to wanna to know exactly what door did they use? What key did they use? How exactly did they get it? And we don't have any awareness of these issues right now. So right now we're basically fighting blind. We're trying and throwing every idea out there. Many of them are you know, absolutely inane. Um, the Wall Street Journal um, came out with an op-ed saying that we should enable cyber private you know, This idea that we give letters of Mark and we let private individuals hunt down cyber criminals. I mean, it, it's not 1879. Like this, these things have been outlawed for hundreds of years at this point. This is not the solution, but because we can't think of even the simple solutions, we go to the extreme and that's the problem really in this domain.
0: Sure. letters of Mark, I think it is in the constitution, but uh, it's, it's not a, a common, uh, 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 commission. Uh, speaking of commission, um, tell us more about uh, your organization. Uh, uh, you're part of it. I hope you believe it has merit and uh, perhaps it's it's uh, a nascent uh, solution, but uh, just share more about uh, how it was formed, what its charter is and uh, where you see it going. And if indeed you think it is the remedy to the this blind spot we seem to have.
1: Oh, there's going to be no easy remedy to these problems. I think the issue though, is that Every few years, the US government has a moonshot, a review, a defense posture. Um, And they never actually get towards solving any of the problems in cybersecurity. So what the Cyberspace Solarium Commission did differently is it focused on implementation of its recommendations. And that, um, I mean, if you take a step back and say that the mandate of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was to review competing ideas for defending the United States against cyber attacks. And in doing so, we came up with a comprehensive strategy to enable cyber defenses. And part of that includes the offense, part of that includes enabling the DOD to defend forward and to get the requirements it needs to meet its uh, national security mission. But on top of that, the goal is to enable deterrence and this is not nuclear deterrence it's a different style of deterrence we're never going to deter all cyber attacks but by target with target hardening and proper defensive protections enabled by the department of homeland security we can prevent the great majority of attacks and the last thing we advocated is a um, concern for shaping the international system and this is probably what we've done the worst at um but the united states has been part of the the UN group of government experts on cybersecurity. Um, There's been, I think, four different um, meetings and they've come up with a set of global norms. And including in those global norms are that you don't attack critical infrastructure. But the reality is is that countries are still gonna attack critical infrastructure. And saying that something shouldn't happen isn't good enough unless you signal what you don't want to happen, unless you tell people what you don't want to happen, and you back that communication up with some form of a threat or some form of consequences, or even a positive inducement. But we haven't been doing that. We haven't been very clear on what we don't want to happen in the cyberspace, and we haven't been very clear on what are the consequences for negative behavior in the space. So clearing up these issues, I think is gonna be the first step Um, But along with that, um, the commission has been very much active with Congress in changing laws, in enabling the Department of Homeland Security, in reviewing the capabilities of the the, uh, the Department of Defense, because every executive order is only good for that one executive. Everything the executive branch, of course, is not going to carry over to the next executive uh, body, and that's really important that we lack continuity in this space, and we're very much focused on that. So the Cyber Solarium Commission um, got 27 of its 52 recommendations written into law last year, and it's trying to get the rest of its recommendations written into law this year. But of course, we won't get all of them in because um, not everything works out the way you want it to in government. And it's been uh, actually, uh, you know, talking about being positive. Um, It's been the most bipartisan space I've seen in D.C. in the last 20 years. Uh, I can't, you know, I know who's Republican and Democrat, but I I wouldn't be able to tell you by their behavior on the commission. So it's interesting to see that we have so many people so invested in protecting the United States. The problem is that we just got it wrong for the last 30, 40 years. and I'm not sure how we've gotten to this point, but obviously with what happened with Colonial and the gas pipeline of the Eastern Seaboard, and solar winds um, this last year and the Microsoft Exchange attacks by China also this year, um, we've gotten some things very, very wrong that we need to fix.
0: So it's reassuring to our listeners, I'm sure to know that there's no no opposition to uh, your goals, uh, but rather it's sort of uh, government inertia, uh, if you will. Um, So we're getting uh, close to the end of our show. Um, I wanna give you an opportunity if you uh, have a project you're working on, a book, Um, or where people can find your work, either at Cato or uh, your work at Quantico, Um, where can our listeners find you?
1: Uh, I'm quite easy to find online Uh, under my name or Twitter. I'm kind of active on Twitter. I should probably actually stop, but the pandemic has not helped. (laughs) Um, And of course, I'm very active with my think tank Cato, so we do a lot of events. And um, I should have some policy pieces coming out soon, particularly one on Signal and uh, talking about the importance of communication in this space, because we just don't communicate, we just don't talk between the sides. And in many ways, it's assumed that cyber conflict is inevitable. No conflict, it is inevitable. And all conflicts can be settled through communication between the opposing sides. It just really requires to figure out what sort of defenses we have and what sort of leverage we have. And if we don't have any clear defenses, um, we have no leverage. And I think that's really the problem we have right now.
0: It's a wonderful way to uh, end our show. I, I appreciate your, uh, your uh, insight. Uh, I think it's very original insight. It's very, very different from what I've read in, in uh, about this issue. Um, uh, I've learned a lot. I think our listeners have as well. So thank you very much uh, for your time uh, and, and for being on Hubwonk.
1: No, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. Uh, It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your local podcatcher. If you'd like to help others find Hubwonk, it would help us if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. And naturally, it's always welcome if you want to share us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for future episodes or episode topics, Uh, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.